Um, yeah, so like Ben said, I'm the, the youth pastor here. Um, if you don't know me, uh, also try and I'll, I'll also be open to meet new people. Um, I'll stand probably by Ben. But if you don't know me or if you just have kids that are youth age and you want to um, get some more information about what our youth group is like and, and all that kind of stuff, um, you're always welcome to grab myself or Caitlin or Julie, um, and we're happy to chat about that stuff. But uh, the consequence of me being the youth pastor is that I may make references that make no sense whatsoever. Uh, so just assume it's one of those Tic Tac videos and we'll keep on moving. Um, <laughs> awesome. So today we're going to be talking about our last 12 weeks on Christian sexuality. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to do that until you brought it up, and I was like, I should scare them with that. Uh, but no, so I'm super excited to be, to be up here speaking to you guys today. Um, we're going to be answering the question of um, kind of what is enough when we're talking about pleasing our God. So we're taking a little bit of a break from your, I guess, regularly scheduled programming in Kings. Um, and we're hopping all the way into Romans 3 to look at what is enough when it comes to satisfying the requirements of our God. And it's a... Uh, it, it's really a, there's a Sunday school answer to this question that you probably have in your head already, like, Jesus, right? Which is true, but Romans 3 will, will kind of give us insight that it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, there's a lot more going on than that, and that is going on, and we're going to dive into that as well, but that's where we're going to start. And so we're going to look at that question kind of in several contexts, um, one being the initial the kind of starting point of this being the law, right? Because we have initially in the Old Testament these the 613 commands that were often used as a way to say, if I fulfill all this, if I do all this, I'll be enough for God. I will satisfy that requirement and I will be made righteous. Now, of course, that's not the purpose of the law, right? We know it was never able to bring justification to us, but it was used that way all the time. It was used as a prideful thing. It was used as a way of uh, people trying to earn something that they never could. And so we'll start there, and then we'll, of course, kind of go into, um, we'll spend a lot of our time on how that gets satisfied through, through Christ and through the sacrifice he makes, where, um, you know, we fail to keep that end of the bargain, to keep those commandments. And, of course, God will send Jesus to be enough in our place, and we'll focus some time there. Um, but then there's still some wrestling left to do with this question, where we're called to holiness, we're called to sanctification, and doesn't that almost feel as if we're still trying to become enough somehow? And so I hope this kind of helps us see, like, there's a lot to this, to this question, there's a lot to this passage. Um, and so we're going to be in, in the later portion of Romans 3, 20, 21 through 31, but before we dive into that, um, I do just want to tee up kind of where we're at in the in the, the, the book of Romans, um, because the luxury of doing a series is that you have all the context by the time you get to whatever point you're at, right? And so we're kind of jumping right into the middle of a letter, and so we need to kind of frame ourselves, get ourselves in line with the audience and say, all right, where would they have been at? What was their mindset? And what, you know, how were they interpreting the letter at this point? So to do that, um, we're going to read a little bit before that, this passage, but also, if you've read Romans, a lot of my, my youth guys are here somewhere, and we're doing a study in Romans, so they're like, they know what's up. Um, but, you know, if you've gotten up to this point in Romans, you're pretty down and out. Like, Paul, I love him, but man, he can be discouraging. And so, like, by this point in the letter, I mean, if you read Romans 1 and 2, you really, it, it, Paul's kind of point is that you really don't think you're all that. 
Um, and that's kind of what he's trying to get us. Now, thankfully, we read things in context, and that's not the point of this whole letter. But we need to be understanding of where the audience's frame of mind would have been. So Paul, I, <laughs> I love Paul so much. He does in verse, let's see, I'm going to start in verse uh, 10, Romans 3.10. What he does in this next passage I'm about to read, and I'm not going to obviously give you the rest of like the first one and two, but just know that's also a little bit um, humbling. And so what he does in this passage, he takes seven Old Testament passages about the fact that man is not all that and bundles them all together just to make sure we really get it. And I, I really respect that. I mean, he's committed to the bit, you know. Um, but I'm going to read, starting in verse 10, it says, uh, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away all alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if you read that... <laughs> you're probably not, like, on a, some sort of spiritual high, right? And that's the point, okay? He knows what he's doing. So we're going we're gonna to pick it up kind of after that, but this is what, what's happening in Rome right now is, is the reason he's trying to get everybody on the same page of you're not all that is because, again, this is a context thing that we need to understand with, you know, we're in the middle of the letter, and then we can't do that earlier. But um, the, the, what's happening in the Roman church is it's a very divided church, and so it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and they are both kind of just being jerks to each other, right? So, like, the Jews have a very prideful thing about the law, which I just mentioned, right? So they're like, oh, we have the law, so we're all this, and then the Gentiles are mad that the Jews are gatekeeping Christianity, and they're like, look, guys, we can do this too, and so there's just constant bickering, okay? And so Paul is, what he's doing through a lot of Romans um, is trying to get everybody on a level playing field and say, hey, you kind of all are not special. Uh, and so, <laughs> and then, of course, Jesus is, right? So we'll get to that part, which is great. But he, he, this is just a picture. This, this controversy in the church in Rome is just a picture of what had been happening for centuries, right? Like with the law, you, you know, I mean, we have the same need of rescue throughout history, the same controversies throughout history. And so this, the, the, where we're at in the church in Rome is just, picking up on that. Um, and I, I just have to imagine that God just sees like the, the church and his people struggling with the law and is like this, this dog with the stick that's just slightly too big to the doorway, just like going again and again and again. And I'm in the process of getting a dog, so that's just where my head's at. But <laughs> if I were God, like that's how I'd picture it. Uh, but he, you know, it's like we're, we're just determined. That's what was, for so many centuries was happening with the law. It's like, we're going to get to righteousness. We're going to get to righteousness. And the thing we were holding on to, the law, is what was keeping us from, from getting there. Uh, and so this is where we're picking up in verse 21, where we've established now that you're not super special, uh, but there's, there's good news in spite of that. And so starting in verse um, 20, 21, excuse me, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So we're still harping on that theme a little bit, right? All of a sudden, it falls short of the glory of God. Baseline. Get us all to the same place. Um, but off the bat, one thing we do need to clarify with this is that that first verse, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's a really weird phrase. Um, I think we tend to just glaze over that, the righteousness of God. It sounds very kind of intimidating. Uh, but there's a couple ways, there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over this, this term, but there's a couple ways it can be used, and it's important for us to understand which one of those is applying here. And so this, um, he, he furthers it in verse 22 and clarifies what he's saying, where he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the two kinds of righteousness of God, so to speak, are righteousness that is uh, right, God's righteous character, right? Like he is utterly righteous. He is um, distinct in that sense. And then there's God's righteousness that he imparts to us where we are made righteous through him. A lot of translations, I think if you have NIV, will say righteousness from God. So that's the second meaning where it's, it's God's righteousness, but it's kind of of him and being put into us to make us right before him. And so we need to understand that we're talking right now um, because he says righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ we're talking about the righteous status that God has imparted to us. Um, that's something we can obtain by faith. God's righteous character, his whole, like that's not something we can obtain through faith. So that's how we know what we're kind of talking about here. But the really big pivot point, the big phrase that would have just been mind-shattering for this audience is um, apart from the law. This is God, righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And so that would have been massive, because it takes both sides of the argument, and it totally removes everything they were standing on, right? Because the Jews were saying, well, we, we're special, right? They had the whole Moses fire on the mountain situation, right? So they're feeling very special because they have the law, and it was given to them in a very, like, fancy way. And then the Gentiles, of course, are really upset that the Jews are using the law that way, and they're like, well, wait a minute. I don't really think that's fine. Uh, granted, they weren't being nice about it. They weren't like, can you be, like, can you let us in? Like, they were kind of bickering. But you know, he takes, he takes both sides of that, and he says, well, if you're, the whole argument was about the law. And so he takes that and he says, the righteousness of God, like your righteous status, it's not dependent on this law that you're all arguing about. And so I imagine when this letter was being read, there was probably like an uproar <laughs> or at least some bickering in the crowd. Um, but it's a, it's a very pivotal point in the letter because we're realizing that what's, what we've been believing as this church for years and years and centuries is now being shattered in front of us. And so what, what this means is, I mean, Paul's trying to kind of find this common thread um, throughout up to chapter three, but even throughout it. And he's trying to kind of find that thread and pull it out. And in, in this case, that thread is that we, we are all in need of being justified, right? So this means that the, the person that you look up to and your mentors are just as desperate for that justification as you are. And it means that the person who seems to like really have their life together and for some reason they just know what they're doing and they've got it figured out, they're human and they're at the bottom of the pit standing right beside you. Like there's no, there's, there's no fancy, like this is not a two-story pit, okay? This is ranch-style living. Everybody's on the same level. We don't have that kind of luxury, okay? And, and so when we, when we forget this, that we're all at this, the bottom of this pit needing rescue, we'll put people onto pedestals. And there's so much damage because they'll, inevitably they're going to fall. This is man we're talking about. Let's be realistic, right? And so they're going to fall, and, and it's just going to, it causes, especially in the church with, I mean, if you want to hear me rant after service about celebrity pastors, come grab me. 
But celebrity pastor culture is, is a perfect example of this, where we're elevating people, and then we realize, wait a minute, they're man too, and they're not perfect. And we could prevent a lot of that if we would listen to what Paul's saying and say, hey, we're all at the bottom of this pit, man, because that changes the way you treat people. It changes the way you approach conversations with people. Um, and the, the same is true on the inverse of that, right? Because on the other side of this, you have the person that you're, um, you're trying to like, avoid making eye contact because they're begging on the corner, and you're just like, if I look straight ahead, the light's going to turn green, light's going to turn green. and Because then you, you, know, you don't feel obligated to give. If you make eye contact, it's a whole weird thing. right? That person, they are also in the pit with you. Okay, so, so you know, this applies on, on both sides of that, where both the people you tend to elevate and the people you tend to view as below yourself are all in equal need of a savior and of justification. And what, what we deserve, of course, to be left in that place, uh, the, the God in his infinite mercy, of course, sends Jesus who would be enough and who offered his hand and pulls us out of that pit. And this is what Paul gets into in the next few verses. So, um, we're at verse 23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's baseline, okay? Verse 24, they are, uh, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, just in the sense that sin needed to be atoned and dealt with, and that makes him just and justifier in the sense that we've been made right with him through the cross. Uh, so he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And again, we see this really big concept start immediately in verse 24, by his grace as a gift. What is Paul doing? Already he's, he's hammering on this theme again. It's a gift, right? So I've established that you can't obtain your righteousness through the law, and then he says, now I'm going to tell you that this is actually a gift. It's not just that you can't do it. It's that it's been totally freely given to you with no strings attached. And so kind of string by string, he's picking apart the, the ideology and the theology of this people group. Uh, and he's saying, listen, like it's not about you, essentially. And, and so then he explains how, how that gift works, right? The kind of inner workings of that gift where we see in verse 25 um, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, it's a weird word, so you might have atonement in your translation, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this word, this would have been a, um, a really powerful word. It's not one we see used a lot, and it's, it's specifically an Old Testament word that refers to this practice of um, like the Levitical priest sprinkling blood over the, the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the nation. Uh, and, and that atoning sacrifice from the animal was satisfying the law, right? It was soaking up all of the judgment and all of the wrath. That was a result of, of sin. Uh, and, and this is what Christ does for us in the New Testament. And so our, our sins didn't come without a penalty. We have to be intentional to remember that. Uh, but Jesus took that upon himself to balance that scale. And that act completed the requirements for us to become free from the, the punishment that we deserved. And, um, of course, the Holy Spirit applies that when we receive it by faith, is what verse 26 says. And so then he gets into a, a interesting, he, 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 my man Paul, he can anticipate a question. He knows his audience, and he can anticipate a question. And so he can already tell they're going to be like, that's great for us, but what about all the other people? And so he says um, that God, in his forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just in the justifier. And so this is Paul kind of saying, okay, we need to address the former sins, the people before you, because they're going to ask about that. And the, the act of, this act of Jesus to atone for us, it's, of course, wildly personal, but it's also for everyone. And so we have to wrestle with how that applies, because everyone includes the people that were before us. So without getting terribly into the weeds on Old Testament salvation, um, there are entire books, I'm sure, written on that, but the, the short answer here is found in the fact that God is sovereign and he's all-knowing, and he knew that Jesus would come at a time when people were sinning centuries before. And so this, this holding back of his wrath on those people is demonstrating his righteousness in the sense of his righteous character. Uh, and it, it proves that he's consistent and that he's faithful throughout all ages, that he's not a respecter of persons. And so when it comes to this, this kind of question about what about the people before, um, or for us, we might say, what about the Old Testament salvation? Uh, the, the answer, shortly speaking, is that it still only comes by grace through faith, right? Like that's what Paul has told us. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll actually see this in Romans 4. Um, and of course, that's pulling from Genesis, but it says that Abraham uh, believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the thing about Abraham that's neat is he lived hundreds of years before the law. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty helpful thing. Uh, and, and so we can see that, that there's a slight difference in that they were looking forward to what was coming, to that propitiation, that atonement, and we're looking back on it. But by grace through faith is still how righteousness is obtained, as we can see um, through Abraham. And so the, the, what this tells us is that the same kind of fix, so to speak, that existed then, it exists now too, right? Only we're looking back and they're looking forward. And in and, and both cases, though, we have to find the commonality in that. In both cases, we couldn't do enough ourselves, Right? No matter if it was back then and they were looking uh, for the, the, the hope of the cross or right now when we're looking back with remembrance and gratitude, in either case, it's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. And so just the way we couldn't keep the law, we couldn't do anything to warrant that mercy either. Like we are total non-players in all of it. And so mercy, mercy will absolutely, without hesitation, trump your best efforts to become enough. And you got to let it. <laughs> you have to. It's, it's so much better than striving to try, and, to try and prove yourself. And so I think a lot of times we end up kind of like the, the child with the square block trying to put it into the round hole and it was really determined there uh, and trying to earn this and do it ourselves. And we might sit there for hours and get tape measures and calculators, but it's not going to go. It's not going to go. And eventually some parent just so lovingly will you know, get tired of watching it and stand up and say, here, let's put it in this one, right? And so that's, that's what God so lovingly does for us when he sees us just like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to, like, no, you're not. Like, we have way too much faith in ourselves a lot of times. And so I think a lot of times we turn this into a, often a subconscious, sometimes we're aware of it, but the thing where we think we can almost earn this, and I think a lot of times it is something we don't, think we're doing, but maybe we say, if I would just dedicate this much time in the Word, or this much time praying, then I would feel better approaching the Almighty God. And, or if I just need to get my act together before I go to church, I need to make sure that I'm, you know, fully, like, prayed up and in the Word, and those are great things, 
but I need to do it before I go to church because that's a holy place and the people there, you know. Or that one person in your life that's just like, oh, well, they're just phenomenal and they're, maybe it's a, a pastoral figure or somebody and, and you just feel like, oh, well, I just need to, I need to, I don't know, I'm going to do some Bible study and make sure that I really like know my stuff because I think he might bring up apologetics and I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and so we kind of do these things to try and become enough for both for other people and for ourselves and for God. But if, if any of that actually worked, could you imagine the selfishness? Like, people are selfish now, but imagine, imagine if we were able to, by our works, obtain a righteous status. That would be a disaster. God knows it. Thank the Lord. He knows that. And he, and he saved us from that. And so this is, this is where Paul leads in verse 27. We're going to talk about boasting, where he says, "'Where then is boasting?' It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For if we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So there's a lot to, to unpack with this, but um, our, our acquittal, so to speak, didn't take place on account of anything we did or did not do, right? And that's where he starts with this boasting thing, because again, Paul knows his audience, and he can already foresee the boasting and the arguments that are going to erupt out of this um, when they're trying to figure out what to do with the law. And so he says that we're, we hold that one is justified by faith, they get in the same phrase, apart from works of the law, apart from the law. And so he's hammering that um, because obeying the law isn't necessarily the answer to being made right with God. And that's a massive concept for this audience. And I think if we really think about it, it's a massive concept for us. We just take that obeying the law and we do it in some kind of more societally normal ways for our culture. But it's not to say that obeying the law has no significance. We have to be careful about falling off the other edge of that cliff. It's just that we're not made right. We're not justified through that. And so this is what um, Paul kind of gets a little bit more into the weeds with, with this question of, is God only the God of the Jews? Because, you know, this law, like we've, like we've established, it was respected and upheld more so by the Jews, but not so much by the Gentiles. And so he's breaking that box by saying that if obeying the law were the solution, it would make God biased towards the Jews because they got the law. So if we emphasize faith, the question is, if we're, okay, I got it, the law isn't the main thing anymore. Uh, it's still important, but it's not justification, right? And so if we emphasize faith, is the law irrelevant? Like, what do we, what do, we do with that? Uh, again, anticipating a question. And so he, he dives into that question, says, you know, in verse, um, let's see, verse 30, 30 and 31, God will justify the uncircumcised by faith and the circumcised through faith. So he's saying Jew, Gentile, you're both uh, justified through faith. And so we still have to figure out kind of what to do with the law, right? How is the law not nullified or just thrown out if we don't have to satisfy those requirements? And so the, the answer lies in the fact that the law's point was never to justify us. The purpose of the law was not so that we could fulfill every command perfectly and then we would be made right with God. That's where a lot of people got it wrong, both in the Old Testament and, of course, in Jesus' time. We see Pharisees doing this. The law's purpose was 
in, in the fact that it can't justify. Like, it's a really cool paradox because the whole purpose of the law is that it can't bring us to a right status with God and that it points us and it gives us this light bulb moment to say, wait a minute, I must need something else. And so the, the whole purpose of the law is that it can't justify. But that doesn't make it nullified. How? Well, because the law is now put onto its rightful stand in the sense that, that by having faith in Christ and receiving justification through his fulfillment, he has fulfilled the law and its purpose remains fulfilled. Its purpose is complete because he has fulfilled it. And so it sits fully fulfilled by Christ, forever pointing us towards him by reminding, him, by reminding us of our sin, right? It's important to understand the law because it does convict and it's meant to convict and it's a good thing to allow it to convict, but it points to Christ, and it's done the same thing throughout history, right? Like in the Old Testament, it did that too. And now it's just that it's, it's been fulfilled, but we still look back on that law and we understand that it shows us we can't be enough. And so from the beginning, we've tried to prove ourselves to God, to, to show him that we're enough and that we deserve justification. Some of that was very intentional and in God's face. Some of it was just... Uh, unintentional and subconscious, but a lot of times, you know, for our culture, for what we experience this today, the way we experience it, is is trying to kind of get right with God maybe before things blow up, um, or hearing, you know, about a layoff and thinking, well, I, well, I better get on his good side because uh, I need to keep this job, and so let me let me spend some time in the Word I haven't been in in a while, right? And so, uh, you you. Maybe you're feeling shame because of some sort of sin and you try to do enough godly things after that to make up for it. And, and what we fail to realize in those moments is that he is a relational and a loving father. And he's saying to you, stop it. <laughs> like, yeah, I bought you with a high price, the highest price. I bought you with the price of the king of kings. My son, would you just rest in that and stop trying to earn the love that I freely gave to you? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do those godly things. Those are good and holy things, right? Being in the Word and, and spending time in prayer are wonderful things, and we should do those. The important distinction with them is that we do them from a place not to earn something. We do them from a relational place because we want to spend time with our Savior and because the Father will... will sanctify us and will make us exponentially more excited and eager to do those things. And so you, be, you begin to kind of make this shift where now instead of getting into the Word because something happened at work or something has blown up, and that's fine to do, but you begin to, to get into the Word because you understand Him as Father, you know Him as Father, and you want to spend time with Him and seek His face. And, and so the, the answer of the question of, of sanctification kind of being a way to do enough to become enough is, is in the fact that it's in mercy, ultimately. But it's in the fact that when you realize the, the magnitude of mercy, of the significance of the gift of mercy, you cannot help but to want to be sanctified. You cannot help but to want to walk righteously. You can't help but to want to please your Father and make Him proud and there's no striving in that place, right? It's the total opposite of that place where we're just doing things out of a, uh, an attempt to earn something. 
and it's a place of childlike wonder and excitement to please him. And it's why we, why it's the reason that the call to holiness isn't demanding us to become enough. It's because when you see his face, there's no other response. What else are we to do? And so I want to encourage us to be mindful of places where we're doing that very thing, where we're trying to do enough in order that we might become enough for him. Because he has already declared you enough. That victory has been won. It was fought. And he, actually, he's declared you much more than enough. He's declared you not just enough, but his child whom he loves. And so I want to pray for us to just realize that and to go forward spending time with him, not from a place of proving ourselves, but from a place of wonder at his mercy. So, Father God, we just come to you humbled that you would love us. And we're so grateful that you still came. Lord, and we ask you to search our hearts, God, to reveal the places where we are trying to earn our status with you. Lord, I pray that we would begin to know you more as Father, that we would fully rest in the fact that our identity has been bought and paid for at the highest price. And so we repent, Lord, of, of striving to earn that love that you're actively lavishing upon us. And we pray that we would go forward from this day and spend time with you and, and treat you as a father, as a son and a daughter should treat their father, not from a place of, um, of striving, not from a place of needing to prove ourselves like this world often tells us we need to do, but that we would just do it from a place of awe, a place of wonder of your mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.